Now please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're not quite sure where that is, go to Psalms. Immediately after Psalms, you'll find Proverbs. And right after Proverbs is the book of Ecclesiastes. In our text this evening, as we get our introduction to this, this great work, this great book of the Bible, it will be chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is the reading of God's word. Let's ask God to bless it to us now. Father in heaven, Again, we pray that your word would go forth tonight, not in word only, but also with power. Speak to our hearts, teach us, build us up, show us your son, show us Jesus in this passage of scripture and in all the scriptures. And we ask these things uh, for his honor and glory and for our own good, and we pray them in his name. Amen. I bet for some of you it's been a good little while since the last time you blew bubbles. Now, for those of you who have uh, small children or maybe even grandchildren, maybe you've blown bubbles recently. I haven't, but you know, you get the little bottle and it's got soapy solution inside and you take the wand out and you dip it in the solution and you blow. You blow gently and out come bubbles. And depending on which end of the thing you use, if you're really careful and you blow just the right way, instead of blowing a bunch of little bubbles, you can grow, blow maybe one really big one. And watch it float for a little while. And see, that's the thing. What do those bubbles do when you blow them? They float, they drift, and then they pop and they're gone, right? And, you know, moms and dads or child care workers blow the bubbles and little kids like to chase them. They try to grab them, but what happens when they try to grab them? They pop, they're gone. They leave almost no evidence of their having been there at all. They, they vanish, even if you let them drift. They, they don't last very long at all. I bet none of you has ever gone out into the yard and said to their spouse, hey, honey, what's that in the bush there? Oh, that's that bubble I blew earlier today. And Ecclesiastes is going to go to great lengths to show that wealth, power, wisdom, honors, and earthly pleasures are all just like those bubbles. They're insubstantial, they're unsatisfying. 
You ever blown bubbles and, and watched your dog try to chase them? You know, the dog tries to catch a bubble in its mouth and you know, just the teeth come down, the jaws close, and there's nothing there. All these things that life has to offer, they're fleeting. They're here one moment, they're gone the next. And the word that we see over and over again in Ecclesiastes to express that reality is vanity. Now, I titled this sermon, this introductory, this first sermon from Ecclesiastes, Kohelet. That's a Hebrew word, and that's the Hebrew name of this book. Um, We call it Ecclesiastes because in the Septuagint, which is an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's what it's called there. It's called Ecclesiastes, and that's where we get our English title. It just comes uh, literally or uh, transliterated directly into English. Um, Now, King Solomon, at least uh, by conventional understanding, composed three books in our Bibles. Uh, He composed Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, and and those two are most generally uh, seen as comparatively early writings uh, that he wrote in the prime of his life. But if you've read the books of the kings, if you've read Chronicles, you know that Solomon, even despite being the wisest man that ever lived, save Jesus Christ himself, Solomon turned away from the Lord. He fell away. You can read about that in 1 Kings 11, for example. And, And what happened, essentially, is that foreign wives, pagan wives, turned Solomon's heart away from the Lord God. You could say what happened to Solomon was a a tragic and and catastrophic version of what had happened to the church in Ephesus that we learned about this morning. Solomon not only lost his first love, he completely turned away from God. Now, there's no record in Scripture that Solomon ever turned back to God, that ever repented. Not like we have, for instance, with the very, very wicked king Manasseh. Manasseh was probably the most wicked king that ever ruled in Judah. And if you were to read his story from the book of 2 Kings, you wouldn't have any idea that Manasseh turned back to God. But praise the Lord, we also have the book of 2 Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles, we find that under the chastisement of of the rod of Almighty God, Manasseh did turn back to the Lord. And with those few years left that he had, He tried to undo the wickedness that he had done. We don't have any such record with Solomon. There's nothing that spells out for us that, oh yeah, Solomon came to his senses and he returned to God. But I think in Ecclesiastes, we get a pretty strong idea that he did come to his senses. And he repented late in life. And you have in Ecclesiastes the writing of a very aged man who learned by very bitter experience some hard lessons in in life. And he's conveying those lessons to us so that we don't have to learn them the hard way too. So Ecclesiastes conveys his end-of-life reflections. Wisdom gained through bitter experience. And what I want to try to convey to you tonight from these few 
opening verses is that mankind can only find real satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only place you'll find true satisfaction because he is the only thing that's of substance. He's the only thing that's not fleeting. He's the only thing that's not vanity. Mankind can only find real satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask, I want to address three questions as our outline for tonight, and they correspond to our three verses. Question number one, who is the preacher? Question number two, what is vanity? And question number three, what's the use? So first of all, who is the preacher? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It is generally accepted, has been generally accepted throughout most of the ages of the church and of the people of God, even in the Old Testament, that the author of this book was Solomon, the king, David's son, his successor to the throne. But his name doesn't appear in the text anywhere. And there are some scholars that deny that Solomon is the author. Uh, That's mainly because ever since about the 1800s in the period of the Enlightenment and um, higher criticism, so-called, of the Scriptures, um, liberal text critics, really, they savor any opportunity to, to uh, cast doubt on the authorship of books of God's Word. So, for example, if someone were just to ask you, someone who was maybe not a Christian, or someone who's a young Christian, they come and they say, well, who was the human author behind those first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy? You could say, well, the, the inspired author of those books was Moses. We call them the books of Moses because we've always held throughout the ages of God's people that Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. But in modern uh, text criticism, scholars try to pick that apart. I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, you know, when you take out your your Christmas decorations starting in late November, early December, and you'll take out your Christmas ornaments and and all the things you're going to hang on the wall and your lights, right? And you'll have these strands of Christmas lights. But last Christmas, you afterwards, you balled them up and just threw them in the box because you were in a hurry to clean up, and now you have to untangle them, right? Well, the Pentateuch... Genesis through Deuteronomy weren't intended to be untangled by us, but what liberal scholars do is they say, well, you know, um, in certain places it refers to God as Elohim, in other places it refers to God as Yahweh, and so these must have come from different authors. So they start to pick it all apart. And then they say, oh, but then there's, then Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy's kind of in a class by itself, so that's separate, and somebody else wrote that, and then you've got these priestly sections, and so they they come up with four or more different authors for books that we ascribe and have always, I think, very soundly ascribed to Moses. Same thing with Isaiah. We believe that the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, composed all 66 books of the prophecy that bears his name, but liberal scholars say, no, no, no. There's a much different style, and he's a much different tone and message starting in chapter 40, and so there must be at least two, two Isaiahs maybe even three. Plus, they say, there's no way that Isaiah, who lived at this time, could have foretold by a century or more the name of a king that was going to rise later. That can't be, so it has to have been a different author. That's where liberal text criticism takes you. 
And like I said, liberal text critics love to figure out ways to say, oh no, Paul didn't write this passage. There's no way. Or John didn't write that. And that's, that's how they roll. But with Ecclesiastes, Solomon's authorship is questioned. And some people argue that Ecclesiastes uh, must have had multiple authors. And sadly, there are even some conservative scholars who doubt Solomon's authorship of this book. But let me just present to you some thoughts about who I think the preacher is and why I think that. If you've got your Bible open to Ecclesiastes 1, look with me at verse 12. Again, Solomon's name is not mentioned anywhere, but here in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. That's very significant, and here's why. King over Israel in Jerusalem. Once Solomon died, the kingdom divided into two kingdoms. You had the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah, and the northern kingdom went on to be called, to continue to be called Israel. And the kings of Israel, from after Solomon, from the very next generation, reigned in um, Bethel or Samaria. They didn't reign in Jerusalem. Only the kings of Judah reigned in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem wasn't the capital of Israel after Solomon. The kingdom divided. And there were only two kings then, only two, that ever ruled over Israel in Jerusalem. And those kings were David and Solomon. And yet the writer of Ecclesiastes says, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So that points to Solomon as the author. In addition to that, He refers to himself as son of David. And that doesn't just simply mean he was a descendant of David. My own Hebrew professor, Dr. Benjamin Shaw, made this observation in a commentary on Ecclesiastes. He said, in the Old Testament, the phrase son of David is never used to identify anyone but one of the immediate biological sons of David. And he makes the example of Absalom, who's called the son of David, or Amnon, and a few others. So it has to have referred to, or very likely refers to, one of David's own sons. Furthermore, there's other internal evidence that points to Solomon's authorship. He makes reference, as we're going to see, to this tremendous wealth that he had. Of course, that points to Solomon, who multiplied gold in in Israel to the point that silver wasn't even considered valuable. He makes reference to his many wives, He makes reference to his great wealth. He makes reference to his tremendous wisdom. And so, our good friend Matthew Henry strongly asserts, it was Solomon, for no other son of David was king of of Jerusalem, but he conceals his name Solomon, which means peaceable, because by his sin he had brought trouble on himself and his kingdom and had broken his peace with God and lost the peace of his conscience and therefore was no more worthy of that name. Call me not Solomon, call me Mara. For behold, for peace I had great bitterness. So I'll just sum up by saying that it was Solomon who reigned in place of his father David, who wrote Ecclesiastes. Solomon is the preacher. 
Then question number two is, what is vanity? Look at verse two with me again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's also how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. Those very words we'll find in chapter 12, verse 8. So we could say, what is vanity? We could say, all is vanity. But that doesn't really answer the real question, does it? What does it mean? What does this word mean? It's not a word we use all that frequently. I mean, when we do, we, we think of it as a person who's, who's vain, and we speak of their vanity. But that's not how it's being used here. So let's consider this word for a moment. The Hebrew word translated vanity here is hevel, and it means vapor or breath. And <clears throat> although it literally refers to vapor, mist, metaphorically, it's pointing us to the idea of nothingness, futility, something that's perishable. I like to use the illustration of uh, in the wintertime, if it's really cold outside, the air is frosty. If you breathe out into the air, you see mist. It goes out, but then it goes away so quickly, just like those bubbles do. You breathe out, you can see your breath, the water crystals freezing in the air, and then it's gone. Philip Ryken said, breathe in, now breathe out. Life will pass you by just that quickly. Not just today, but all our days from beginning to end. If we look at Psalm 39, verse 5, this same word, hevel, is used there, and it's used specifically to speak to that very thing that Riken pointed out. It's used specifically to speak to the brevity of life. And so Psalm 39, verse 5 says, the, the psalmist is, is in prayer here, really, and he's saying, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And there's some really interesting uh, wordplay going on in the Hebrew there um, because two names are in that verse where, where the psalmist says, uh, uh, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath because that word hevel, vapor, vanity, is also the name of Adam and Eve's son, Abel. And the word Adam, man, is Adam's name. So the psalmist is saying, what he's really saying is, all mankind stands as a mere breath, but in the, in the Hebrew, it's almost like he's saying, all Adam is able. All mankind is a breath, a vapor, vanity. So that's how that word is used outside of the book of Ecclesiastes, just to emphasize the brevity and the passing nature of life Or turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. James picks up on this same theme in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're like that vapor that's there and then it's gone. You're like that bubble that's there and then it vanishes, leaving no residue. In the Old Testament, sometimes this word hevel is translated in our English Bibles, idols. Because of the very meaninglessness and insubstantialness of idols. Now, you've probably heard these verses in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, read uh, in the way we heard them tonight, using the word vanity to translate hevel. But Again, there are different nuances to the word, and so some translations will use a different word. For the, the NIV, for example, translates it uh, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. All is meaningless. The Christian Standard Bible translates it futility. This word occurs 38 times in Ecclesiastes. 38 times. That's why it has such a familiar ring to us when when. We read in Ecclesiastes, this too is vanity, or vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In fact, if you were to spread the occurrences of the word hevel evenly across the whole book of Ecclesiastes, it would pop up every five verses or so. That's how often Solomon employs it. And there's also in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, a, a, a Hebrew um, grammatical device or a Hebraism, a, a device that, uh, f- that's used for emphasis very frequently in um, biblical Hebrew. And that's, that's the, the, the act of doubling a word. So the way in ancient Hebrew you'd usually lay emphasis on an idea or a concept is, is double the word. And uh, a good example would be, for instance, in, um, in Genesis 2. When God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the trees of the garden except for that one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat of that tree, of its fruit. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's what our English translations say. Or they say, you'll certainly die. But what it basically says in Hebrew, if we were to translate it a little bit more woodenly, is you will die the death. So that Hebrew word for death is doubled. To say, you will die, I promise you. You will surely die. So the Hebrew word for death occurs twice there to say, you will surely die. Or similarly in the, in the tabernacle. You know about the tabernacle and how it was set up. If you were to enter it, you go into the, that first inner room and that's the holy place. But beyond the holy place, there's a room that's even more holy. And it's called the holiest place or the holy of holies, which kind of, illustrates what's going on in the Hebrew there because you've got the holy place and then you've got the holy of holies. So that doubling is what gives emphasis and Solomon is doing that very thing in Ecclesiastes. He's not just saying vanity, all is vanity. He's saying vanity of vanities. In other words, what he's getting at is ultimate vanity or um, the way a different version puts it, absolute futility. For emphasis. 
So again, vanity, the word, the word hevel, is capable of a range of nuance, and as one commentator put it, he said, it's difficult, if not impossible, to find a single English translation equivalent that does justice to the word's nuances in all its varied contexts of usage in the book. To understand what the preacher means by vanity, one must follow his train of thought throughout the book as a whole and not base one's understanding on only a few passages. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the whole book and see how he uses this word and try to get a stronger handle on what vanity means. But I think primarily, if we were to ask the question, what is vanity? The answer would be that it refers primarily to that which is temporary, that which is passing, and that which is insubstantial. Just think about those bubbles. But then finally, the question, what's the use? Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the word there for toil, just, it means more than just normal labor. It means arduous work. And so what, uh, this is maybe one of the thesis questions of the whole book. And so Solomon asks, what's the use? If everything is vanity, then what good is anything that we do? This is a central question in Ecclesiastes. It's a central issue. We see it come up again and again. Chapter 2, verse 2. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure. What use is it? Chapter 3, verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. In other words, what gain is there in anything is what he's asking. And it sounds very cynical, doesn't it? What's the good of any of it? Solomon spent his life seeking satisfaction. And guess what? He never found it. He never found it in things. He never found it in the stuff he pursued in this present age. Quite the opposite. As he pursued this thing and then the next thing, and then he tested the next thing, he sacrificed much. He forfeited much. And his experience and what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes as we progress through it foreshadows the words of the New Testament. The Lord Jesus, in Matthew 16, 26, essentially is asking the same question. What's the use? But he puts it this way. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Ecclesiastes asks that question. Jesus did too, many centuries later. Where he told the, the parable of the rich fool, you know, the man who, whose, pro, whose crops yielded abundantly and he was going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones and then he was going to sit back and enjoy the easy life and, and take pleasure in all of his produce. And God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? 
Solomon asks the same kind of question. And he even expresses his remorse and his bitter grief that he had amassed all this stuff and then somebody else is going to enjoy it. Solomon's authorship becomes especially relevant at this point because he had tried it all. Pleasure, wisdom, power, money, things, all the trinkets that the world has to offer. So the question is then, if he tried everything and didn't find satisfaction in it, do you really need to try everything too? Do you? Is there something inside telling you, well, I, I really want to try to find my satisfaction or my fulfillment in this, that, or the other? Solomon's already done it all. and He's got a message for you. None of it satisfies. Solomon had every resource. He's the wealthiest king in his day. He was the most powerful king in his day. He had access to anything he wanted. And so, no matter what that idol might be that you're harboring in your heart or that you're tempted to pursue, Solomon's message for you is, been there, done that. And it won't satisfy. So Ecclesiastes doesn't teach that life itself is meaningless. It doesn't teach that nothing has any value. But one central message of Ecclesiastes is, is that the things of this life pursued for their own sake or pursued for selfish purposes will never satisfy you. They can't because the very one who created them all didn't design them to satisfy you. Ecclesiastes teaches that worldly power Sensual pleasures, riches, influence, and stuff are just like those bubbles you blow. They don't last. They go away. They're insubstantial, and they can't satisfy the hunger of your soul. Isaiah told a parable that illustrates the same point. He wasn't talking about the exact same thing, but I've always, this, this has always stuck with me. He speaks of a man... When a hungry man dreams, and behold, he's eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and he wakes faint with his thirst not quenched. You know, and sometimes scripture, even when it's speaking of the brevity and the passing nature of life, it refers to life as almost being like a dream. Psalm 90 sort of does, and it really comes out in in our uh, hymn, our God, our help in ages past. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Life is like that, like the bubble. It's brief, it's fleeting. So Solomon observed that all is vanity. But the one greater than Solomon offers you something that lasts. Something meaningful. The one greater than Solomon offers you something substantial, something eternally profitable. He offers himself to you. In Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus 
tells the story of two builders, one built on the sand. And when the storm came, the wind blew, and that house fell. But the one who listens, hears Jesus' words and, and does them, he's the one who's like the guy who built his house on the, on, the, on the rock. And the same rains, the same floods, the same winds came, but that house stood because it was founded upon the rock. The house on the sand is like vapor, it's like vanity. There was a prominent missionary by the name of C.T. Studd, and he is known to have written a hymn with a refrain, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. See, all the most desirable things of this world, anything the world can offer you, even the very best things that the world can offer you, won't make life complete. They won't satisfy you. They won't fill you. Solomon himself could have written the first verse of our closing hymn. It speaks of, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn to thee again. Every time we try to find fulfillment in something else other than Christ, we're just going to have to go back to him empty and unfulfilled. But praise God, he fills us. Mankind can only find real satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that there is true fulfillment, true satisfaction, and eternal blessing in our Savior Jesus Christ. May we always seek him, cling to him, and find all of our satisfaction in him. And let it be, let it be unto his glory. We pray in his name. Amen.